Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Hello, friends, and welcome to the podcast. Hope everybody is doing well out there. When I was growing up, I wanted to be a police officer because my dad was in law enforcement and I kind of wanted to follow in his footsteps a bit. In my late teens, I was a police cadet in a neighboring city by where I live, but well, it wasn't very exciting. I had assignments like checking in on the homes of people who had asked the police department to drive by and check on their houses while they were gone on vacation. I don't think they do that anymore, actually. And that same city also had an airport with no control tower, so another assignment was to count the airplane traffic. All of that was about, well, as exciting as watching the grass grow and the paint dry. As I approached the age of 21 and had the opportunity to join my city's police department, I took the written and physical tests and passed them, and next I was given a lie detector test on a polygraph machine. After I was all wired up, the man conducting the test began by asking me simple questions. What, you know, what's your address? What's your favorite color? He even encouraged me to try lying. He wanted me to demonstrate to myself that the polygraph actually worked well. Once the actual test started, I was pretty nervous, not because I was trying to hide anything, but because I thought the machine would interpret my nervousness as lying. But everything went fine, and I beat the polygraph. Or, uh, I mean, I passed the lie detector test. As George once said to Jerry on Seinfeld, it's not a lie if you believe it. That sounds like something George would say, as well as most politicians. Most states consider the test results of a polygraph inadmissible in a court of law. In fact, whether or not that person was even willing to take the test, that information is inadmissible in testimony. That's because while a polygraph test is 80 to 90% reliable, it's not 100% accurate, therefore inadmissible. But investigators can use a polygraph with a suspect's permission to help determine guilt or innocence. I was, in fact, watching a documentary on a man who was suspected of murdering his family. And while he cooperated fully and seemed to tell a good story, police investigators had a strong sense that this guy was the one they were after. At one point then, the investigators asked him if he would be willing to take a lie detector test. He was a pretty cool customer, and he immediately said, yes, if that will help clear me as a suspect, I'd be happy to. I'm not sure if he thought he could beat the polygraph or if he was just that cocky and confident, but, well, he failed the test miserably. When investigators turned up the pressure on him, he eventually caved in and confessed to the crime. As we return to our studies in 1 John chapter 4, John stresses the importance for us as believers to discern between spiritual truth and error so that we don't fall prey to lies and deceit. Believers are not to simply accept everything they hear as being biblical truth, even when it comes from supposedly Christian sources. 
Back in the first century, believers didn't have personal Bibles like we do today, making them dependent upon the instruction of spiritual leaders. But obviously, not every teacher spoke God's truth, since Satan was using false teachers to spread false doctrine, just as he still does today. This included the heresy of Gnosticism, which was spreading rapidly during that time. I want to say right up front, and please hear this, that these words of warning from the Apostle John are very timely and very much needed in our churches today. So then let's jump into our reading in verse 1 of 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. I'm titling this message, Being a Spiritual Lie Detector, because John's exhortation here is for us to discern the things we hear and read. We'll be looking at the first six verses for this study, and here in verse 1, we're going to begin with John's command to test the spirits. That's our first point. So how do we evaluate the things we hear and read? Well, John begins by saying, first off, test the spirits. He starts with the word beloved, which not only identifies his readers as believers, but also emphasizes his affection for them. And with that, it's important to see here, and catch this please, that John is putting the responsibility for discerning between truth and error and lies on the shoulders of believers. In other words, John couldn't stop the false teachers, but he could warn and encourage believers to be good Bereans. John says, don't believe everyone who claims to speak for God, and with that, test to see if the spirit behind their words is from God. All of which is to say, don't be spiritually gullible. During the Korean War, an American soldier was standing guard at his post, and he heard a noise out in the darkness, and that soldier called out and said, halt, who goes there, friend or foe? The voice called back from the darkness, friend, not convinced, the soldier said, recite the words to the star-spangled banner. That soldier was wise not to believe too quickly. And as soldiers of Christ, we must also be wise not to believe everything we hear spiritually. In all honesty, I've met some pretty gullible Christians who failed to discern between truth and falsehoods. Now, I understand sometimes they're simply new believers, so it's, you know, it's understandable. Little babies are prone to just grab anything within their reach and stick it into their mouths with no discernment, so we have to help them and even watch over them. And new believers are in the same way. Now, but I've also met some well-taught Christians who were just darn right gullible and should have known better about false doctrine that was clearly unbiblical. John here gives us the command, do not believe every spirit. The Greek wording literally means stop believing every spirit, so it's indicating to us that there were some believers back then, just as there are today, who were being duped by false teaching. Rather than believing every spirit, we're to listen carefully and test the things we hear. Test the spirits. Test them for what? John answers that by saying, test them to see whether they are of God or not. Why? Well, because there are many false prophets and teachers in the world, John says. But what does testing the spirits mean exactly? The Greek word for test means, among other things, to analyze and evaluate and then determine. And it gives us the word picture of metals or precious stones that are being evaluated and analyzed for their purity and value. Most of us probably know about the gold rush history of California back in the late 1800s. 
Many people were migrating west, hoping to make their fortune in the midst of the California gold rush. But would-be prospectors quickly learn the meaning of the phrase, all that glitters is not gold. That's because a lot of what glittered in the riverbeds was actually iron pyrite, or what is commonly referred to as fool's gold. As a result, the miners had various ways to test what they found to see if it actually was gold or not. I was reading that one of the ways that miners tested their findings was by biting on the nugget because real gold is softer than human teeth while fool's gold is harder. That's what John is challenging us to do, to test what we hear because all that glitters spiritually is not biblical. Some of the things being taught in church pulpits today is the equivalent of spiritual fool's gold. We need to evaluate the message and test what is being said through the spiritual polygraph of God's word. Testing the spirits then refers to testing the message of the teachers. The word spirits here is describing the human teacher whose message is either coming from a spirit of truth or a spirit of lies, deceit, and error. And this serious warning for John is again because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Just recently in my daily Bible reading, I was in Acts 8, and the story of a man described as Simon who practiced sorcery. The evangelist Philip had come to Samaria in the days of the early church, and as he preached the gospel of Christ, many Samaritans were being saved. Before Philip had arrived there, this sorcerer named Simon had been dazzling the people with his occultic magic. The text tells us that he claimed to be someone important, and for a long time, he convinced many of those people that his powers were actually coming from God. But after Philip arrived and proclaimed the good news, gospel of Jesus, many turned away from that. They were becoming believers and getting water baptized. Then the text states that Simon himself believed and was also baptized. That sounds really good, doesn't it? Some crazy sorcerer just had a radical conversion, right? However, as we soon learn in the passage, Simon's claim of faith and his act of water baptism were false professions of faith. Let's not forget the words of James when he said that even the demons believe and they tremble. Simply believing isn't saving faith unless there's genuine repentance. People on earth today hate to hear the word repent, but people in hell wish they could hear it one more time. And so we're reminded not everyone who professes Christ and is water baptized is genuinely saved. Only time will tell if a person is truly a new creation in Christ, even as Jesus explained in his parable of the sower. If someone is genuinely born again, it happens instantaneously, but then it takes time to see the fruits and the evidence of their conversion. Simon started out with the signs of a genuine conversion. He was baptized, and then he continued with Philip. However, it soon became clear what Simon was really after, to learn the secret source of Philip's miracles and his gospel preaching so that he could do miracles as well. In many ways, I think Simon saw Philip as like another magician whose tricks were better than his, and he wanted to learn them. Sometimes later, uh, Peter and John arrived, and believers were being filled with the Holy Spirit. But we never read that Simon received the Holy Spirit, and worse yet, he was pleading with Peter and John to sell him this great power of the Holy Spirit. Peter's response says it all, your money perish with you. 
The J.B. Phillips translation gives us a very literal wording here from the Greek with Peter telling Simon, to hell with you and your money. That translation is both descriptive and biblical. The story is told of uh, C.H. Spurgeon. He was having great success with ministry over in England. Large crowds were coming to hear Spurgeon speak every Sunday, and it was not unusual for him to have gatherings of well over 5,000 people. Meanwhile, back here in America, P.T. Barnum was trying to make a name for himself in the circus business. When Barnum heard about the large crowds that Spurgeon was drawing, he wired over to England and offered Spurgeon a great sum of money if he would come to America and speak at his circuses. Barnum's intent was to capitalize on Spurgeon's popularity by attracting large crowds and building up his circus business. Spurgeon wired back to Barnum, read Acts 8.20. And as we just read, it says, your money perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. Peter's words to Simon then revealed that he was not a genuine believer. Peter essentially said, may your money go with you into hell because that's where you're headed. But then Peter also challenged Simon to truly repent of his sin and spoke of how he was bound by iniquity. We don't read that Simon ever repented. Instead, he asked Peter to pray for him so that the consequences of his sins would not come upon him. People often mourn over the consequences of their sin rather than mourning over the sins that brought those consequences. Coming back here to 1 John, we're to test the spirits just as Peter and John did with Simon. Listen to these wise words of Pastor Chuck Swindoll who writes this, and I'm quoting He says, test the spirits. Don't go by how large of a crowd that teacher is able to attract. Don't be impressed by titles, degrees, and letters after names. Don't be enamored by the beauty of the robe, the sheen of the suit, or the eloquence of the voice. Our standard is the word of God, the gospel of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the essential truths of the historic Christian faith. Some people today may call it being narrow-minded, but the Bible calls the reception of these truths as being noble-minded, end quote. Swindoll is absolutely right, and there is a difference between an audience and a congregation. A crowd of people in a building doesn't make it a congregation of genuine believers. The truth is not determined by how many people believe it. I appreciate the statement of William Penn when he said, Right is right, even if everyone is against it, and wrong is wrong, even if everyone is for it. And so we're to test all things. And so now let's continue our reading. Let's go to verses 2 and 3. John says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So first off, we're to test the spirits. And now secondly, if you're taking notes, we're to listen to the spirits. Listen to what they're saying. Determine if their message lines up with scripture. If not, reject it and even warn others to do the same. Please listen. This is precisely why it is so vitally important For us to be in the Word of God on a daily basis, we need to be so filled with the truth that we can immediately identify a lie. Christians are oftentimes led astray because they're unfamiliar with essential truths. 
Many of us have probably heard the illustration about the Secret Service and their training in dealing with counterfeit money. In their training, they don't so much handle or concern themselves with counterfeit money, but instead they spend their time focusing on genuine currency to the point where they can recognize the counterfeit immediately because they're so familiar with the genuine. That's exactly how it should be with us as believers, that we're so familiar with God's word and the truth, we can recognize a lie or an error immediately. In my early 20s, I was working as an assistant manager in a restaurant. One afternoon after the lunch rush, I went to remove the excess cash from the front register, and I immediately noticed a fake $20 bill. I knew it was fake simply because it was just so poorly made. The color was off, the paper felt different, it it was just clearly phony. So I questioned the hostess at the register about it, and she remembered taking it. When I asked her why she accepted something that was clearly phony, she just shrugged, shrugged her shoulders and said, it looked okay to me. Naive and biblically ignorant Christians are like that. They listen to a false teaching and accept it. When you ask them why they accepted such a false, blatantly false teaching, they sound kind of like that young hostess. It sounded okay to me. In these verses, we're reminded that everything significant in the spiritual life revolves around Jesus. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ coming in the flesh is coming from a spirit of God. And those who deny Christ in the flesh are coming from a spirit of false teaching. Many of the essential and foundational truths of the Christian faith center around Jesus, his virgin birth, his incarnation when deity became humanity, his sacrificial and substitutionary death for our sins, his atoning blood, his resurrection from the dead in a physical body, and on it goes. So not surprisingly then, in every major cult, the place of their departure from the truth is in regards to Jesus. And let's remember again that John was dealing with Gnosticism there in the first century, a heretical teaching which stated that deity and humanity could not coexist in a person. Therefore, they denied that Jesus had come in the flesh. Because of the spread of Gnostic teaching, the debates about Christ in the second century were not about his deity, it was all about his humanity. Today, it's the other way around, and while the cults acknowledge his humanity, they'll say he's a teacher or a prophet, they deny his deity. Either way, none of it is coming from a spirit of God, but from the spirit of Antichrist, which opposes God. Listen, over the past decade, another false teaching that is not from the spirit of God is what is called progressive Christianity. Be very aware and careful about this, please. In my opinion, the false teaching of the cults has been more of an issue with individuals, you know, knocking on the doors of homes and kind of attacking people. They wouldn't say attacking, they'd say sharing, but attacking people with their false doctrine individually. Whereas progressive Christianity is something that's been permeating and invading the church. So what is progressive Christianity? Well, first of all, let me say that what the cults and progressives both have in common is they mix error and truth together. More error than truth, but there is some truth. A common thread of progressive Christianity is an overemphasis on social justice and the environment. And listen, the Bible certainly instructs us to be good caretakers of the earth and to help those in our society who cannot help themselves, but the overemphasis of it takes priority over evangelism and sound doctrine. It puts a higher priority on what you do rather than what you believe. 
Many progressives also like to view and interpret scripture through science rather than the other way around. And all of that is dangerous, but what is deadly is when progressive Christianity takes foundational, essential, long-held biblical truths like the inerrancy of scripture, the work of salvation, atonement, judgment in hell, and other essentials, and they tear them apart. In some cases, they outright deny those truths. In other cases, they redefine them. And oftentimes, they'll just teach and convince people we simply don't know. That just leaves people with nothing except doubt and confusion. One example is this quote from a progressive leader who said, God did not kill Jesus. Human culture and civilization did. God did not demand the death of Jesus. We did. That's an outright contradiction of what God says in his word. Here's another quote from another progressive. I would love to hear more artists who sing to God and fewer who include a father murdering a son in that endeavor. That's crazy. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. If Jesus hadn't died for our sins, we would have no hope. And so this is just all contradictory nonsense. In many ways, the redefining catchphrase of progressive Christianity could well be, forget everything you ever thought you knew about Christianity. Elisa Childers, author, speaker, worship leader, and former member of the Christian music group Zoe Girl, has written a very needed book about progressive Christianity. She titled it, Another Gospel? Question mark. At one point, Elisa was in a progressive church, and she shares some alarming examples from that time. In one instance, in a church class, the progressive pastor asked those in attendance, is there anyone here who still believes that Adam and Eve were literal people? Wow. In another instance, a progressive pastor asked, who believes that we were born good and who believes that we were born sinners? I guess the class was silent for a while, and Elisa finally spoke up and said, well, I believe that we're all born sinners. And that pastor challenged her and asked her why she said that. In both instances, Elisa admits that she knew the right answers in her heart, but at that time, she couldn't explain them or back them up with scripture. I really appreciate her honesty, and I appreciate her book, Another Gospel, which helps to expose progressive Christianity for the false gospel that it is. And so let me please repeat what I said a few moments ago. This is precisely why it is so vitally important for us to be in the Word of God on a daily basis. We need to be so filled with the truth that we can immediately identify a lie. We need to be so familiar with the genuine that we can immediately spot the counterfeit. Well, let's read a few more verses for this message, picking up in verse 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So first off, we're told to test the spirits. Secondly, listen to the spirits and see what does and doesn't line up with Scripture. And here now, our third point, discern the spirits. The good news is that we have the advantage over these false teachers because the Holy Spirit is living in us and he's greater than the devil in the world. So while we need to be alert and aware of spiritual error, we don't need to be afraid. 
in verses 4 to 6, notice carefully how each verse begins. Verse 4, you are of God. Verse 5, they are of the world. Verse 6, we are of God. Since you are a Christian who belongs to God, you have the Holy Spirit in you who is greater than any demonic spirit. As believers, we have the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God to help us discern and defeat the wiles of the devil. In the Old Testament book of 2 Kings, there's that great story about Elisha and his servant. In chapter 6, the king of Syria wanted to capture the prophet Elijah, Elisha because he kept telling the king of Israel what Syria was about to do militarily. Elisha's spiritual insights were thwarting all of Syria's military strategies. So the Syrian king sent many troops to the city of Dothan, where Elisha was staying, in an effort to capture him. The Syrian army of horses and chariots surrounded Dothan on all the hillsides. When Elisha's servant went outside the next morning and saw the surrounding Syrian army, he freaked out and asked Elisha what they were going to do. Have you ever woke up one morning and freaked out because your circumstances were so overwhelming? And, well, maybe like Elisha's servant, you wondered what in the world you were going to do. If so, listen carefully to Elisha's response to his servant. Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and asked God to open the eyes of his servant spiritually. God answered the prophet's prayer, and instantly the servant saw the angelic armies of God on horses and chariots of fire surrounding the Syrian army. The Syrians couldn't see him, and the people of Dothan couldn't see them, but Elisha and his servant saw them. In that story, Elisha's protection and help was in the holy angels. As believers today, our protection and help is in the Holy Spirit who lives in us, and the holy angels are also around us as well. When we look at the state of the world today, we can feel overwhelmed. But let's not look at those circumstances. Let's remember that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. When you have the Holy Spirit on the inside, you can stand strong against anything on the outside. As we read in verse 6, we are of God. Then John adds, he who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. As an apostle of Christ, John wrote and spoke words of truth, which genuine believers recognized they heard and obeyed. But those of the world, the unsaved, they don't hear or comprehend those words of truth. John's statement here reminds us of Christ's words in John's gospel when Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. John's final statement in verse 6 gives us a fitting conclusion and summary of the passage. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. If a person confesses Jesus as God come in the flesh, and all that is taught in the Bible about Jesus, and that person stands upon the whole essential truth of Scripture, well, that's the spirit of truth. But if a person denies or diminishes the deity or humanity of Christ or denies any other essential biblical truth about Jesus or undermines the essential truths of Scripture in any way, that is the spirit of Antichrist. Listen to how Pastor Chuck Swindoll summarizes this. When you are searching for the truth, listen carefully to the one who is speaking and look closely at the ones who are listening and following. That's a great exhortation. Listen carefully and look closely. And so, until our next podcast Bible study, God bless you.